Welcome to PR Mageddon, the podcast about best public relation practices for a new world. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Murray. Today, our guest is Mary Ritz. Mary is the Vice President of Product Management for ForgeRock. She's unique to our podcast because she's never had a PR or communications role, but she's ended up doing a lot of it anyway. I think that can be the case for a lot of people in a leadership role. And it's especially the case for her now that she's at a tech startup that's trying to increase its name recognition. More about Mary. She has a strong background in tech. She earned her bachelor's in information systems and her master's in telecom from the University of Colorado. She has three patents in network security. She started her career at IBM, where she had many roles. Probably the one she gets asked about most was when she was an ethical hacker. Her clients would ask her to break into their systems to see where they were vulnerable. She then moved on to Hewlett Packard, where she eventually became the director of product management for ArcSight. She's now at Forge Rock, a San Francisco tech startup that focuses on digital identity. Because of Mary's deep technical knowledge, she's been asked to translate what her products do into common language for clients, investors, journalists, and the general public. I wanted to talk with Mary about doing PR from the C-suite, the creative steps the tech industry has taken to connect with audiences during COVID, and how PR practitioners can convince executives like her to spend more time doing PR. Mary Gritz, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Margaret. You are actually the first person I've interviewed for this podcast who's not in a communications role, but I wanted to talk with you because I know you've ended up doing a lot of PR. Can you give us just a quick overview of your professional journey? Sure. Yeah. So you're right. I'm not in uh, PR or communications. I'm a technical person. So I started out my career in cybersecurity doing ethical hacking. So I've always been very technical, but I've always rose to leadership positions because I was comfortable with what we call outbound work, meaning I'm comfortable talking to customers and talking to media and talking to analysts. And so I've always held roles that take advantage of both my technical side and that outbound and like I'm managerial sort of leadership perspective. You know, I've been in cybersecurity about 20 years and now I'm in an area of technology called product management. Basically I design and release products that large enterprises would use in the cybersecurity space. Now you're in a startup, you're in a vice president role. So you kind of have to do a lot of PR, right? Because you're trying to get name recognition out and you're trying to gain clients. It's very different from your day-to-day role, I imagine, where you're more managing people and doing product design. Can you share, you know, did you get any special communications training? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. So for, for all of your students listening, I'm the kind of person you might be coaching in, in your future life because I'm the kind of person you want to talk to the media because I've got the credibility of having the technology chops, but am I good at talking to the media? Was I trained in that, you know, in school? No. So they do, they do prep me and I've been prepped a variety of ways. I've worked at IBM and Hewlett Packard. They usually bring in like an outside consultant just to make sure that, you know, the basics, these conversations with media, they're not conversational. You go in with a plan, the points you want to make, they have like their philosophy on how they want to approach it. And then Anytime you get with uh, media, they, there's certain points that you're trying to get across. And so you'll re sort of every year, you kind of re up on what's the current things we're trying to say this year. Um, so I get ongoing training and it's a different skill set for sure. So for me, it's, it's funny because I talk a lot to customers who want to know deep technical details and we can just spend an hour just nerding out like crazy. And then you get with a journalist. And you're supposed to answer in two to three sentences very succinctly. It's hard for me. I have to really practice. It's a different skill set. And I find it hard to because I I'm thinking about the nuanced depth of everything we're doing. And they just want to know the headline. Right. So you need to know ahead of time what is the headline and give it to them exactly so they don't misquote yeah. you or so basically I go in with my list of points and whatever question they ask. I try and get my point in. So I try and politely answer what they said and then have a pivot to bring in the stat or the point. So my job is like bridging whatever the journalist asks and what I know that we're trying to say and make sure I can politely do both simultaneously in my answer. Now, pre-COVID, 
you traveled a lot to do PR, whether meeting with clients face-to-face or doing more intense public appearances. Can you share your experience at the competition where you were actually competing for journalist attention? We have a PR agency, you know, at the company I work with, and they come up with these different things for us to get attention. And one thing they do is this pitch competition. So they service a bunch of startups in San Francisco Bay Area, and they set up this pitch competition. So they get sort of the top journalists that cover technology locally and internationally, and they bring them all into one place. And then they have their startups and a few others they invite, and you go around and you pitch your company to these different journalists. So they do it for a few reasons. One, you get practice and feedback on your pitch, but two, by the end of it, if you were any good and you keep going through the different rounds, a bunch of different journalists have actually heard your story. So it's kind of a clever way to get these companies more known by journalists and set up follow-up conversation. So to me, that what was interesting about it is normally when you do media, it's all over the phone. So you just, it's more relaxed. You have your notes maybe nearby. This was face-to-face. I'm standing, they're sitting, I'm three feet away. There's four of them at a table and I'm going through these different rounds. And then afterward, they would tell me what they liked and did not like about my pitch and what resonated and what didn't resonate. And Margaret, this went on for hours <laughs> and it was, you know, if, if you're anything like me, you hear negative feedback more loudly than positive feedback. So all I kept hearing was negative feedback all night during the process. I was slowly correcting for each round and getting stronger and stronger. I ended up winning the pitch competition, which felt exciting because I was building a skill and getting really direct feedback. Um, but it was, it was just my chance to really get immersed in what are these, what are these journalists really like? What are they looking for? What are they reacting to? I'm able to see their facial expressions. Very helpful to me. It also was just, you know, like the most awkward four hours of my life for sure. Well, it's great. You got that experience pre-COVID, right? Cause like you yeah. said, now it's on the phone or it's via email. It's so much different to do it remotely. It is, you lose that connection or seeing them grin when they hear something. Also, I found I was able to personally connect with them because they would look at me. I'm non-traditional in the tech startup space. I'm a woman, I'm younger than the typical people. When I looked around at all the people pitching in this competition, I'm the only one that looked like me. And so I think that was also to my advantage. They were caught by surprise. They're curious whatever, what I was gonna say. Um, and I could capitalize on that. So I feel like it helped me to be in person. Well, now doing everything remotely, PR has had to get even more creative than this pitch competition, which I think is such a great idea. Uh, you did an online cooking show to talk about your product. Can you talk about what that was like and why you did that? Yeah, it was it was super unique, which was why I agreed to do it. So the other thing is I, I usually can say yes or no to these opportunities, Um, but I got presented with an opportunity. Do you want to meet with this journalist who does these cooking shows while talking to technology leaders? And it was just weird enough for me to say, yeah, I guess, yes, I guess I'll do it. So I filmed in my home because it was the middle of COVID. So I set my own camera. I had my AirPods in, and then I'm, I've got a zoom session with this journalist. We're both in our kitchens. I've prepared a recipe. I'm going to be cooking while she's asking me questions. Uh, And again, I did come with my prepared points. I had them taped to my wall. And so I was ready to say the things, you know, that my company wanted me to say. And actually it was really enjoyable, but I remember thinking who in the world is going to watch this? This is just so weird. And actually, I think it might've been my most watched thing because it was weird enough for people to want to click. And it was also a mix of personal and professional that is really interesting. It's in her house. What does her kitchen look like? This is so interesting. What recipes she's making? It was a weird combination of me exposing myself as a human while connecting technology. And interestingly, every time I've ever done that, it's been my most successful uh, outbound type work. And so I think it is some kind of interesting formula that works really well. Every time I've opened up my personal life and my professional and done it together, that has gotten a wider audience, more clicks and more positive response. Well, I think it's easier to be engaged. I watched the cooking show 
and I learned about your product, it is a bit of a non sequitur because I would start to get sucked into you talking about the product and then they would ask you a question about the zucchini and it did (laughs) kind of seem silly, but it also was fun and light and anyone could watch it. Yeah, no, my, my mom watched it. My aunts watched it. Like no one ever watches my stuff and my, my family does not know what I do for a living, even though I have been doing it for 20 years, it's, it's alienating to them because of how technical it is. When I do stuff like this, they'll watch it. And all of a sudden they're, they know a little bit more about me. So yeah, that, that is interesting. And it, for me, it was fun to allow a way for people outside my work to see a little bit more about what I do. Absolutely. So you shared that on your personal social accounts where you might not have shared it if it was just. That's exactly right. I never share the other stuff. I feel like who would want to click on this, but when it's a cooking show or it's a story about me being a mom, I am willing to share it with my personal group and they share it because they'll say, um, I, oh, I have a friend that has a daughter that's interested in technology. I want her to see that this is possible. So I'm going to forward it because it's an accessible thing that's combining my career with um, my personal life. And they find it inspiring and want to give it to their girls growing up, that kind of thing. So it goes more viral that way. Yeah. You blogged and you shared this on LinkedIn, right? Your personal writing about being a female executive and a mom. What made you want to open up like that? You know, I, it's something that's close to my heart. I've always struggled to feel, um, sort of like, uh, to relate to my peers because my situation seems so much different because my peers are generally men and they don't have the same type of situation with children that I do, you know, they didn't deliver a baby. They didn't have to breastfeed. So there's just, there's this difference. And I've, I feel like I've really yearned to understand how, how people manage um, being a parent and their career. Anyway, so I, I've made it a personal goal of mine to share more openly what that's like, because I want to help others. So for International Women's Day, my company asked me to do a blog and I decided to use um, that theme. So I wanted to have an inspiring, here's how to support women in technology and also something that would perhaps inspire um, the younger generation. I know when I was younger, I was sort of terrified to have a baby and how does this work with also having a career? So have it be inspiring. So I, I felt satisfied or thankful that I got to write it. What was interesting was I didn't realize the PR benefit to my company. So right now there's, you, everyone wants to be more inclusive and hire more women and get more diversity, not just women, but people of color and just you know, they really want to break from the traditional hiring model and having a visible female executive that's a mother that's talking about how she's doing it. You realize her company is supporting her in doing this and they're publishing as well. So it was good for hiring um, and also just their, their image of diversity and inclusion and supporting women in technology. So I didn't really think about that when I was writing it. And I will say the PR team, when they're coaching me, they're always trying to pitch to me, this is good for your brand, right? Like if we get you in Forbes, (laughs) the Wall Street Journal, this is good for you. So the selling me on, I'm really investing my time in being good at PR, it's good for my company for sure. But they're also selling me like, this is going to be good for you. This is your brand. We're here just supporting you. And so that does, that's their way of selling me on spending my time to do these, these different engagements. Well, yeah. And from the PR planning side of it, they had to have international women's day on their radar and they had to think through who is in the company that we would want to represent us. And then they have to pitch it to you to really open up your personal life and give you enough time to write it and edit it and feel comfortable and then they probably edited it yes. and then had it all ready to go for International Women's Day. So they yep. have to, you know, look at the whole year. What are the days where we want to highlight and how can we highlight the wonderful employees we have and how can we share it? So, yeah. 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 A lot of thought goes into all the pieces coming together and they do have to give me time. So when you're working with a VP, 
I, my schedule is crazy. And if they want thoughtful work from me, I need time. And I'm really appreciative if they'll edit it and make me sound smarter and better than I you know, would normally be. It's always such a relief to me that they would present me in a way that's polished because it's, it's, it's me, especially when I'm combining personal with work, with work, it's, it's me that's getting out there and I don't want to be embarrassed or think about it 10 years later and just cringe. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're vulnerable. Yes. Very vulnerable when you do this. Another creative idea, and I don't know where this came from, but you recently did a take on between two ferns because of COVID and the <laughs> distance. Where did that idea come from? So the backstory is there's these big annual kickoffs in a company. Uh, and normally you would fly together and you have this kickoff the year and exciting start. Well, this year, no one can fly together. So we wanted to put together some really exciting videos and, um, and I needed to do a joint video, but it's COVID. So we couldn't get together in person. If we were going to get together in person, we were going to do a little spoof on the between two ferns, that comedy, um, skit. And so we partnered with a, it was a media team that does video production. And so we worked through a script of, of the points that we want to make. Cause right. We're always there with our three points that we want to make. And then we said, you know, how do we make this funny and clever? And, and it was funny. Cause they came to me, like you give us a script. And I said, you guys, I'm not funny. Like the, I don't, I don't know how to be funny. So um, this video production team came up with a really great idea where they superimpose, like they, zoomed my face onto the head of a robot and I could drive around and I could drive into the between the two fern set with the host and get settled and have a conversation. It was kind of perfect because it's extra funny because it's me coming in as a robot. So I had to partner with a creative team because like I'm not video production. I don't know how to write scripts. I'm not particularly funny. So it took it took a group of people to figure this out, but at the end, it was really hilarious. And what a nice way to have a better video that's engaging during this time in, in the corporate world, we're all getting sick of staring at video presentations. So to have all of that effort, I was really proud of our company putting so much effort to hire a video production team, put this together, hire the robot. Like I, I had a remote control from my house into this robot that was actually in the UK just to put that much energy into making something engaging was really cool. It is. I was wondering if they were in-house, but no, they hired a whole team to pull we this have, off. Yeah. We have an, a team that we generally use when we do stuff and they, and thank God for them. They swooped in. I remember. So I put like my three points in this script and said, can you guys make this funny? And they, they totally did. It was awesome. Well, it makes sense because think of how much time and money they would invest to fly you all together and put you yeah. all up in hotels. And now yeah. they, they're not spending that money, but they still want people to be engaged and pay attention and not just have it open on their computer, but you're actually checking Facebook, you know, in person, we would have spent 45 minutes to an hour remotely. They're 15 to 20 minutes. They're pretty highly produced. Um, the other bits included someone coming in on a helicopter or driving a Ferrari, or they did pretty elaborate things, but they're trying to keep a large audience engaged and have punchy uplifting things. But at the core of each one of these videos is three points that you're trying to get across. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that makes sense. But you've got to do something to keep people interested and engaged. Yes. And keep yes. morale up. It's been a tough year. It has. And I would say that the creativity this year has ramped up. So I feel in person, people get a little lazy. They think you throw some people on a stage or in a panel is the worst. And like, it'll come out interesting. That's not true. I, I really love the push this year for creativity and conciseness. Like let's get it short, sweet, punchy. It takes 10 times the work to do it that way, but it's, I think it's a good lesson learned this year. And i I I'll always shift how I think about material after this year. So as a consumer of some of this content, that's really creative. What has really stood out to you as something where you're like, that was well done. You know, like they didn't waste my time. I'm glad I sat on zoom and watched this. The things that have stood out are, have been funny 
they've had a little script. So there's some inside joke that they're playing on like a TV show that you, you know about. Um, and for the technology world, there's a, an actual demo of how things work. That's very short. I mean, five minutes would be long. One to two minutes is perfect, but it, this year it's no more PowerPoint slides and talking about in theory, how the technology is valuable. It's just like, show me how it works, do it in a clever, funny way and keep it short, really short. Like I used Mm -hmm. to push my team to do five minute demos. This year we're doing 90 second demos. Like, and then we do, instead of doing four or five minute demos, I do like 10 90 second demos and people love them. So yeah, short and, and real not, don't make me attached to a theoretical notion of technology. Show me how something actually works. You know, what would I click on to do this thing? And what would the dashboard look like when I clicked on it? That makes a lot of sense with more, but shorter because people can rewatch them if they want to. Yeah. As opposed to in-person where you could really take your time and get into it. And you know, once they walk away, that's it. So you really need to drive it home. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that I've seen happen a lot this year is more emphasis in trying to get inclusivity with the audience. And there's been some trial and error in what works well there. So if you ask a hard question or like a question that someone would have to type in and answer, that doesn't go well. If you ask your whole audience in real time, thumbs up, thumbs down, what do you think about X? What do you think about Y? Just like the most binary and then you share that with everybody in real time, they love that because that makes you feel like you're part of something. Somebody else is participating in this. You, you get a sense of whether the way you answered is the same as everybody else. Yeah. A thread that's kind of coming through is connecting, right? Humor is a really great way to connect with someone over a distance, right? Even though you're not together, if you have this shared humor, this shared joke, these polls you're talking about, people want to feel connected as much as they can, even though they're just watching it on a screen. So yeah, I think that's sense. right. And But you can offend them if the way you connect with them isn't appropriate. So we have, you know, we've done some things where we asked too much of them. We asked them to answer a hard question in a small amount of time and they felt frustrated. Like, if you're going to ask me that, give me time to answer. They want to feel connectivity in an appropriate measure and and basically everything this year is about what is the shortest question you could ask? What's the easiest, you know, it's just like as little as possible to feel the connection is the recipe for this year. <laughs> I don't know what will be next year, mm-hmm. that's the recipe for this year. Right. Well, everyone's burned out. Everyone's yeah. tired. It's winter. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. But if you think about you were, if you were doing a speech in person with a hundred people, you would just do a show of hands right? It would just be razor. It wouldn't be every person types two sentences. Another thing I really wanted to ask you about was internal communications, because I think it's a very important part of PR. It's often overlooked some of this more flashy, fun stuff, right? Getting the Ferraris and the helicopters flown in. Um, But how do you stay connected with your direct reports and try to maintain talent when you can't all get together, right? You're so far apart. Yeah. I guess in my particular company, we're growing really fast. And so there's so much going on. So everyone feels like they don't know what's going on. Um, So I do a few things for internal PR. We have our, you know, for my own direct reports, we have a lot of meetings where we just get together and chat and I have one-on-ones with them. But then also we have we pretty regularly communicate with the whole company about what we're doing so that everyone has a chance to feel like they got caught up. And then for big company emails, often the PR um, group and communication group comes in and they edit messages because the different parts of the company will read the same sentence and maybe be like violently offended about it or really love it. So having somebody come in and like, get it right. People wanted to feel thanked this year. They wanted to know information about COVID. They wanted more communication than usual. Um, So we do for important emails, we 
there's a team that will propose how it should look and edit them and who's going to send it and when are we going to send it? When do we get the most readership? Friday afternoon's not a good time. So there's a lot of thought going into, we want to keep people excited about what we're doing, proud of what we're doing, clued into what we're doing. We have internal communications as it was really important this year. And we, I tell you what, we communicated more than ever and it wasn't enough. It's just, it's mm. like, it, you can't, it's like, you can't ever do enough of it. Well, yeah, everyone's so isolated. Yeah. But your company did do some internal awards, right? Like best new employee and yeah, yeah, we have uh, we have quarterly awards, and then we have the annual. We, um, I work for a company called Fordrock, which has an FR, so we have our Oscars, which is called the Froskers, and so it's happening in January. Normally, we dress up and in person do it. We'll see how it happens uh, remotely, but yeah, a lot of you know to make sure we're recognizing people, and then we also have just awards from person to person. There's a service we use called Blueboard, but you can basically give somebody an experience. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's so positive. I mean, you need, I think the bonding that happens, the team bonding, even if you can shoot someone an email and say, Oh, I saw you won the award. Congrats. Yeah. yeah we do like team yoga. There's pub trivia night. There's it, we had a contest decorate the, for the company, decorate your desk for um, the holidays. If you send in a picture, we voted on our favorite. And then that person got to give $500 to their favorite charity. The person chose this really sweet pet rescue. And so the pet rescue sent this thank you. And that gets sent to the company. But all these things to suggest like, hey, we're normal people at home, decorating our house, caring about pets, you know, that, that kind of internal stuff sets the culture of the company. People want to work, you know, for a place that they believe in. Mm -hmm. Why not? Why not work for some place you really, you know, believe in? Absolutely. You want to contribute more and stay longer. Yeah. It helps with retention, staying longer, staying motivated. And, and there's no one right culture, but having a culture seems to be the most important thing. Uh, we were, I was talking with one of our investors, these VCs that are billionaires, and we're saying, you know, what's the best kind of culture? And he was like, nope, there's not one. You just, you really need a culture, but the, there's different ways it can, it can work. Yeah. The consistency of a culture and the shared vision and yeah. Yeah. yeah that yeah, makes it belonging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just clarity. If you have a strong culture, everyone knows what's expected and yep. How things that's work. right. Well, I wanted to go back to something you alluded to earlier, which was that PR people are often trying to convince you, mm -hmm. right? Like they're trying to get you to work for them, right? Yes. Do work for them. Yes. My what? day job, I do not get paid to do PR. It is not on any of my metrics. It doesn't impact my salary or bonus. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet they need me. I'm the person they need. Yep. So for my students who might be in that position where they're trying to convince people to do PR who they don't, they don't work for my students and, you know, they don't really have any authority. What's most effective? What makes you want to agree? Okay. Yes. I'll do this extra work unpaid <laughs> versus mm, no, no, thanks. <laughs> yeah. I, so candidly, I think you hit up their ego. So you flatter them for what they do and why you are specifically choosing them. Uh, you know, I'll get a pitch like, we're going to pick our top three people in the company and you are one of them. So this is special and not everybody has this. And then they'll pitch about, you know, this is your brand. We are going to fight for you to get your brand recognized across and they'll rattle off a bunch of publications or that they're going to try and get. Yeah. So it's, I feel like it's flattery. It's kind of pitching. And then knowing that I'm always kind of sold when I realize they're going to help me sound smarter too. And so it's an opportunity for me to grow my skill set and how much impact and influence I can have. And ultimately this helps my resume if I do it well. And if future employer Googles me and they see my name everywhere. So you're, you're kind of playing to that aspect. And if they trust that you are competent, it is in their best interest to partner with you. Do you have a favorite PR experience? Like something that surprised you or 
a journalist who went out of their way or? You know, my favorite things in PR have been when I, um, I signed up for something that I didn't feel qualified for was a little like I was the cooking show and the pitch competition as two examples of they seemed weird. Why are you picking me? Who's ever, why does this matter? And then I do it and I realize, oh, this is fun. You know, this is, this was unique. I learned something. I had a good time. I actually think that most technology folks like myself, we get so insulated talking to a certain kind of personality profile. And when I do media, I'm realizing, oh, right. Like there's other kinds of people out there that see the world a different way. And it feels right that I would feel that I've, it gets me out of my bubble. And anytime I can get out of my bubble, I think that makes me better at building products because I think anytime you're insulated, it's dangerous. So I'm always, um, I like to be stretched and pushed and taken out of my bubble. And anytime that happens for me with media, it, it actually happens proportionately a lot with media because that's not my typical um, day job. But it must really force you to translate, right? Like constantly getting out of that tech mindset yes. to like, how can someone not in tech understand this? Yes. That's a totally different skill. Yeah. But you know, if you think that it's so important because there's so many new people to tech, it's actually bad. If you assume they know everything, you know, it's, there's so many new people, even these C-level type customers, they, if you can talk in general terms in a very concise way, which is what media and journalists want, I think actually everybody wants that. Now they, they also want you to be able to double click in later, but they don't want you to double click in right away. And so I think it's a really good skill, a good life skill. Mary, thank you for being willing to take some student questions. Thanks. Happy to be back. All right. First up, we have Erica. Good morning. My question for Mary is if she learned any specific lessons from working in a startup versus a more well-established company in such a competitive field like tech. Well, it's a good question. And it makes me think of a lot of different things. So I'll go through some categories of how they're different because they are, they are very different, especially when you're thinking about tech. I'd say the, the first big difference between a small startup and a large corporation is the span of control and what you work on. Usually in a small company, you get to do a lot of things and maybe do things that you're not qualified to do versus a big company. You have a smaller slice of what you're working on, but the trade-off for that is in a big company, you're set up with lots of best practices. Someone really smart came in and figured out an optimal way to do something in a startup. It's the wild west and you're probably the smartest person in the room and trying to figure it out. So there's it's a different kind of learning curve. And some people like one more than the other. There's always more tech innovation in a startup, always, always. And it's because if you think about the, the business model, so a large corporation cares about making money, like being profitable, but a small startup just cares about growing and they're losing money. So they're pumping a lot more money into technology. So for a technical person, Usually a startup is much more cutting edge um, and disruptive. Another thing I feel a lot is the, the different caliber of customers you get access to. A big company like Google, you're going to get access to the best names. A small startup you've never heard of is not going to get a phone call with those people. It's much harder to get access. Same with like media and publications. They want to hear what the VP of Google has to say and not the VP of some, some company they've never heard of. So you have to hustle a lot more with a small company to get big opportunities. And then just like financially, if you're thinking about where you want to go when you graduate, there's different incentives they give you, you know, a small company, you could make a life-changing amount of money or not. <laughs> it's kind of high risk, high reward. And there's volatility of the business. A small startup has no room for someone that isn't performing and they could go out of business pretty quick versus a big company you know, I worked at IBM and we had people there that I, I don't know that they ever did any work and they just sort of stayed hidden there. Their gift was staying hidden so they could keep getting paid. Um, but I'd say like, if you were to ask me what my favorite is, I like both and I'm glad I've done both because I've learned different things and having the mix is really like I've used both sides 
And then like, if I could pick my most perfect kind of company to work for as a technology person that loves tech and getting to innovate, you might not be surprised to hear, I, I look for the smaller side, but actually there's like this size of company. That's a really large startup. It's almost not even a startup anymore, but it's not a big company. And so they're stable and mature and you have a job, but they're still just focused on growth. So they're pumping money into the tech. That's my um, happy place usually, but I would work at any, any, any profile really. Yeah. So it's a good question. Cause it's like, kind of depends what angle you're thinking about it, but it is something to think about it as you think about the kind of company you want to join when you graduate and start your career and like strategically maybe trying to do both at some point in your career, because each one will benefit from the other one. Small companies love people from big companies to help them uh, and vice versa. Big companies are sometimes want that startup vibe to start to innovate more. So having both is pretty well-rounded if you can pull it off. It's a great corollary to PR agencies, because if you work at a giant international PR agency, you're going to have access to better clients or at least more well-known clients with a higher profile. And it's kind of a nice place to start out because they know how to teach you how to do PR agency work, right? You have a very specific role. It's a, you know, probably you have a mentor or a training program, but you don't get to do some of the more high level stuff. So if you're in a little boutique firm, you might get to try everything and have more say and have more input kind of like at a startup where you can influence things more and try different things. Great question. All right. Our next question is from Margaret. Hi, Mary. So my question for you actually pertains to the banner on your LinkedIn profile. I noticed that it was you giving some kind of talk or presentation. And I was wondering if you could expand on kind of what the topic was or why you were giving a certain presentation. Thank you. Hey, Margaret. Uh, nice to virtually meet you on this podcast. I, you know, I was in Paris, France, giving a presentation to several hundred people. And I liked that. I, I put it as a banner incidentally, because part of my job is very external facing. I have to do a lot of public speaking and uh, I just wanted, it's, it's sort of a good, it's good for like perspective employers of mine to know that I can do that. But so I was there giving a talk about my product. So I run a big product. This was a conference. So a bunch of technical customers that we have, or people that are thinking about buying us came together to hear more about our product and meet us. And so I was on stage for about 20 minutes and I was talking about recent product features and why we built them and why they're useful. Uh, and interestingly on that one in France, so I, I'm pretty global in France, many people are much more comfortable listening in French. And so there was a real time translator. So everybody had their earbud in their ear and were listening to it in the language that they prefer. Or most people were listening to it in French, which I thought was great. A lot of times I get flown around and I'm speaking English to a group that I know is not native speakers. And so I'm trying to slow down my pace or I can get a little insecure. That one I thought was a really lovely treatment for the audience that they would do that. And you could tell the audience really appreciated it. That's amazing. They could do that in real time. The trick of it is we have a strong contingent in our company in France. So they, they knew our product and they knew me and they knew what we were doing. And so we didn't have to hire anybody. We just got our own people to do it. Ah, that's very smart. And another tip for professional branding, that's a great photo of you. And a conference is a great time to ask someone to take your photo if you're speaking, because you're dressed up and you look professional and it's great. You know, it's a great LinkedIn banner. So yeah. And it feels really authentic. Like I didn't pretend that I was speaking. I'm actually speaking. You can see this mic and um, yeah, I think it gives us authentic. I'm comfortable on stage vibe, which was hopefully what you felt Margaret when you saw it. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Other Margaret. Um, Other Margaret. Yeah. Right. All right, our third question is from Melissa. Hello, Ms. Wirtz, my name is Melissa Zamet. And the question I have for you is, did you receive your media training from anywhere specific? Or was it something that you had to learn for the role that you were in and learned as you went along? Thank you. Hey, Melissa, uh, thanks for the question. I have gotten very specific media training. In fact, most companies won't let you talk to the media until they feel good that you're not going to screw it up. And so often the gate that you go through is some kind of media training. That said, I don't feel like any of the media, 
media training made me feel very confident. Most of the media training I got was just someone presenting to me guidelines and best practices and what I could and couldn't say. Cause usually there's like certain things they want to make sure you say and don't say, and how many, you know, they'll be like, how many customers do you have? They need everyone to say the same number. So you sort of get the bullets of like the facts that were publicly stating at the time because they can shift, you know? So I would say that then the rest you kind of learn on the fly um, in doing it. So I, I felt like I never had that thing where someone sat down into like practice sessions with me and really, really got me good. And I, and I say that because I've for the public speaking side, which I feel very confident in, I did get that level of training where I was working at IBM and they brought in an external consultant. They sat me in a room. They made me present topics. They videotaped me. They critiqued me. I tell you what, it's one of the more painful, embarrassing things I've gone through because it's hard to watch yourself, but in the meantime, they're peppering me with best practices and looking at my body posture and teaching me how to kick off a presentation. And at the time, I remember just cringing because I, I had to do it with my boss and she was seeing me be an idiot, you know, like, like, but I'm so thankful for that level of investment in me as a public speaker, because it's totally changed my career with my ability to be confident in public. And I'll say like, I'm not the world's best speaker. I'm not going to be Ellen DeGeneres and like entertaining a crowd, but I'm competent. I'm capable. The only thing I, I wish I was more like funny. Like I'm always looking at, you know, the people that can pull it off, they crack a joke and they're so fun. And, but the thing is, I'm not even really that funny in real life, like with my friends. So it's just not authentic for me. So I just go with, you know, what's authentic and right for me, but yeah, I, you know, on those things, just don't let perfect get in the way of good enough. But so I just compare and contrast and say, I wish I would have had that level of media training though. No company will let you talk to the media without like feeling like you can do a good job. And they learn that by watching you talk in other scenarios, how you present to them, how you present to customers. So they're, once they realize you can pull off ad hoc things pretty well, then they'll stick you in media training and then they'll start you with the very low tier media and you work your way up. That makes sense. And, you know, part of the media training is trying to guess what journalists will ask and how to fit in what you want to say, even if they don't ask it. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's definitely yeah, still. Yeah, they've definitely given me all the tactics about like, here's what you do. And it's a question you don't want to answer or you don't know the answer to. And generally you go in with the three things you want to get across your points. How do you weave them in, in a way that's not like offensive? Cause you, you got to get them in. Like that's your whole goal for being there. And you're not thinking about the journalists as the audience. You're thinking about the person reading it. So it's kind of unfair. This poor journalist just wants a straight answer. And you're like, no, I'm trying to answer for the people that are going to, you know, you're abstracting out, but um, yeah, there's definitely specific ways you approach it and how they really want you to keep a strong relationship with that journalist. They want it to be easy. They want the journalist to come back and ask another question later. It's like a lot of relationship stuff too. Also, mo most all of it now has moved to text. So they'll just say, I have this question. They email it to me and I'll get two hours to turn it around. So they don't, it's, it used to be a phone thing or an in-person thing. And now they send you a question via email and you got it and they flame it to a bunch of people. It's like whoever gets in first with a good answer and they select. So, which for me actually easier because I'm much better at typing a tight sentence than thinking about it on the fly. I actually prefer it. I feel like I come across better if I've been able to type it up. Yeah. I think that's way easier for everybody. Yeah. I think it's easier for them too. They can flat flame out, get 10 responses, pick their top two or three, um, that they like, and that just saved them a lot of time too. But it also means you have to be good in order to get selected and you gotta be fast. So that's the hard part. Uh, like I might not have seen the email or I didn't have time to really think about a great thought. It just boom. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Our last question is from Lauren. Hi, Mary. I think it's so interesting. You work in the tech industry. What are several interesting trends you've recently read about? Thank you. Have a great weekend. Hey, Lauren. I think that uh, is a good question. And I tell you, we're living in an era of crazy technology disruption. So 
you know, I, I wouldn't say it. So I'm going to deflect a little bit, not the stuff I've read about lately, because I think it's going to be too nerdy. And I don't think you're going to love what I would have to say, what I've read about this week. But generally in my career, the big disruptors in technology uh, have been one big data. So we can store a lot of data and compute is cheap, which means we can do AI and ML. And that has totally disrupted how we think about providing value and innovating in products. The other one is- ML is machine learning? Oh yeah. So artificial intelligence and machine learning. So all the data science stuff you hear at like neural networks, that has been a big shift pushing disruption. The other one is just like the cloud companies starting up. So Google and Amazon have made it so it's really easy to stand up a server and build an application. And so that has made it so that small companies, little startups can disrupt huge corporations really quickly because they have access to the things that the, only the big companies had before. So you see this these like big shift in dynamics and what's possible, which is really exciting. And then the third one is the the networking and the social. So the ability to connect like we never have before we connect to stores and banks and our friends and healthcare. And so easily my space has always been cybersecurity. So all of these things have implications in security, but, you know, I think about just like the, like the history of big, big shifts in innovation and what it does to our society. So the wheel comes out and totally changes transportation and the industrial era with manufacturing and machinery and what that did. We are living through one of those times right now with the technology, with this, with the three things I talked about, and particularly that um, networking, the social connectivity online, it is disrupting every single company I work with, they're all fighting to figure out their space in this world and how they compete and what their value is and how they're not going to get disrupted by somebody. Like everybody's just going crazy to figure out their space in this world. And if you look at like, there's the fortune 500, the biggest 500 companies in the world, it used to be these companies that have been around hundred years. Now you look at it and it's like, how long has Google been around? How long has Amazon been around? These, it's fast. You can get up there, fat Facebook. Um, so just the biggest companies in the world are actually pretty new now. And, and who knows what's going to happen to them because they could get disrupted. So it's just super exciting. Also, of course, terrifying because we're all navigating being in the middle of this crazy era that we're living in that people are going to write books about later on us. But um. I still think it's fun. What it means to me is there's so much potential. Like there's just potential to do fun things, to do new things, to be in a company that's growing. So I, I mostly just love it, but it's also like, no one just gets to relax and say, I figured out something that works good. And I'm just going to do this thing. Even in PR, the, what was great PR two years ago is not great PR today. COVID totally changed how we do PR. And so you just, you're just like constantly reinventing yourself every single year in every industry. So it's kind of exhausting. Um, so that's my thoughts. That is really interesting. And I've never even thought about Google. I just looked it up. Google was founded in 1998. So they didn't even exist 30 years ago. So yeah, I, I did an exercise to go through the top fortune 500. Cause I mostly, I work with a lot of companies that are big, but they're nervous. And so, and you look at the fortune 500 and you're like, yeah, girl, you should be nervous because like everybody's getting knocked out. Um, yeah. So it's just a time of massive shift. And it's, it's because of some of these technology shifts, which have just disrupted, like the wheel did for transportation. We're just living in one of those eras where big technology shifts have just changed life for us. How we parent is different. How we get healthcare is different. Like I need, we all feel it, right? We just went through COVID and had a, a really good exclamation point put on this where it got solidified that we're in a new era. But I think mostly I get excited about it. I think um, I, I think with each one of these, there's some rocky bits, but you come out thinking, well, I'm sure glad we have the wheel, right? I'm sure glad we have manufacturing. I wouldn't go back. Um, it ends up being usually a meaningful impact in our lives going forward and for the positive. Yeah. Well, it just permeates everything. So with PR, we talk a lot about social media and you have to have a social media strategy, no matter what your industry is, but yeah, you can think of it as using tech in traditional PR, or you can think of it as doing PR for tech. 
either way, you're going to want to be thinking about tech a lot, all the time, every day. Absolutely. Yep. Almost every PR person has to think about cybersecurity, not, I mean, I'm in cybersecurity, so it's kind of self-serving, but every company has a security breach. Every company has to have a plan on what I'm going to do when it happens, because the breach isn't the problem. It's how you respond to the breach. If you bungle it, you go out of business. If you do it right, people are actually pretty impressed that you pulled it off. And so um, everyone has to have a plan for what am I going to say? Who am I going to communicate it to? How quickly can we operate? Do I have a call list of who's involved and are they on standby? Because you have only so many hours to deal with something because everything's shifting so much to the digital world, you have cybersecurity risk. So you just have to be ready to respond. You can't assume nothing's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. Got to be ready for it. And if you nail that response, oh my God, every other company is going to want you because they all know they're like, if she knew how to, she or he knew how to nail that response for that crazy crisis that this company had, that's who I want for the next one. I want someone that's battle tested. So it's not necessarily bad to go through a crisis in PR because you get your battle wounds and the next company is like, yeah, I kind of want someone that is scared and is going to prep to make sure that we know what we're doing. Yeah. Thank you for saying that because we talk about crisis communication and it's, you know, all the things that we do for regular crises or like old school crises. Do you have a press release already written? Do you have a website built that is dark now, but could go live instantly? Do you know who's authorized to speak on this topic and have, are they prepped for the media training? You know, we think about that with more traditional crises. So yeah, we yeah. need to add that to our list of crises that are potential. And like you said, probably even expected sooner or later. Yeah. It just happens to everybody. The more high profile you are, the more you have to publicly respond. So a small company maybe can get away, but there's legislation that requires certain kinds of disclosures, regardless of your size, depending on the type of data you have. So, um, but yeah, everybody's connected to their customers online. So everybody's got some risk and some data now. Well, I'm really glad we talked with you. Super yeah. relevant for all of us. All right. Well, thank you, Mary. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, class. I wish I could be there with you. Hope you're having a great day. This podcast was made possible by the Hub for Teaching and Learning at the University of Michigan-Dearborn. It was produced by Muhammad Jafar. Hear future episodes by subscribing on Spotify, Radio Public, Google Podcasts, Breaker, or Pocket Casts.